Um, I'm going to uh, go through a kind of inquiry into the relationship between the mind and the brain, and in particular, the idea that you can use your mind to change your brain, to change your mind for the better. In other words, you can use uh, where you place attention and what you do with what you're attending to to stimulate the underlying neural circuits or other factors uh, in the nervous system that support wholesome states of mind, useful, practical uh, factors um, in consciousness. Uh, and by stimulating those neural circuits, as we'll shortly see, since in the famous saying from the work of the Canadian psychologist Donald Hebb, neurons that fire together wire together, neurons that fire together wire together, if we stimulate the neural substrates of the good stuff we want to experience or um, intend or come from or be inclined toward or feel, uh, if we stimulate those neural circuits, we strengthen them. So let's go into it. All right, so this is a brain, three pounds or so of tofu-like tissue. I always think of it as kind of like a rotten cauliflower. And even though it doesn't look like much, as Hippocrates and Rick oh Mangulis uh, were saying, uh, it's arguably the most complex physical object known to science. It's got about 1.1 trillion neurons in it, roughly, or cells altogether, 1.1 trillion cells, about 10% of which are neurons. A uh, typical neuron connects with about 5,000 other neurons, giving us a network inside with on the order of 500 trillion synapses, those little connections uh, between uh, neurons inside our brain. So what's the point of all this fancy hardware? Even though the brain is only about 2 to 3% of body weight, it uses about 20 to 25% of the supplies coursing through our blood, the oxygen and glucose that it burns. Uh, to and uses and consumes uh, to do its work. Well, the fundamental purpose of the nervous system is to move information around. That's what neuroscientists mean by mind. They don't mean some capital M cosmic consciousness mind. They mean information, most of which is forever outside of awareness, down deep in the underlying architecture of the nervous system. Only a tiny fragment or fraction of all the information moving through the nervous system is available to us as conscious experience. We privilege it because it's what we know, and yet it's really only a small part of the puzzle. The Buddha was very interested in, as certainly Rick and I are as well, in how to cultivate uh, useful factors, useful changes, useful developments down below the waterline, as it were, down below um, the down into unconscious underlying processes that in turn then shape and condition uh, our moment-to-moment -moment conscious experience. So that's the meaning of the word mind in general terms. And inside the natural frame, if there's to be any kind of mental activity, whether it's unconscious information processing or conscious sound sights, hopes, dreams, joys, sorrows, uh, the sense of experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, perceptions, memories, or thoughts and feelings altogether, or even awareness itself, right? If there is to be any kind of mental activity, there must be some kind of underlying neural activity. As an illustration of this, this is a slide of someone who's practicing compassion practice, sending loving kindness to all beings, and this person's got to really concentrate. So that's an image of a brain sliced this way, looking that way, 
And the orange blob is the cingulate cortex, a part of the brain that's very involved in the top-down executive control of attention, the deliberate focusing of attention. So I've never been in an MRI myself. Um, how many of you have ever been in an MRI? Wow, a lot of you. Uh, what's wrong with you people? But anyway. <laughs> well, anyway. How, many, how many of you have been in a functional MRI scan where they were looking at your function of your brain? Not so many. Okay. Anyway, my point is, it's a weird, claustrophobic, loud, banging experience. So this particular <laughs> Tibetan monk is really focusing, right? And so because he's really focusing, he's activating a key region in the brain, the cingulate cortex, that is very involved in that particular function. In other words, his mental activity of sustaining focused attention must entail some underlying neural activity, an increased activation in that particular part of the brain. Now, it might look like the rest of the brain has gone dark. I think of images like this um, as a little bit like a campfire in the woods. You know, it looks like everything else is quiet. No, it's just this part of the brain is only about 2 to 3% more metabolically active, but it's a difference that makes a difference. Okay, and by the way, the four words at the top are a recurring refrain uh, in the uh, early teachings of the Buddha that describe uh, a sincere and dedicated practitioner as someone who is ardent, heartfelt, diligent, resolute, and mindful. And these are four words that uh, I periodically return to uh, as um, guide, guide, guidance for guidance. I'll say it at that. Okay. So now let's take a look at what happens with repeated patterns of mental activity. Repeated patterns of thoughts and feelings, intentions, and that which is cultivated, uh, for better or worse. Repeated patterns of mental activity entail repeated patterns of neural activity. And in turn, repeated patterns of neural activity uh, build neural structure, change neural structure and function in a whole variety of ways. You know, as it shows here in this slide, you know, again, quoting from the work of Donald Hebb, neurons that fire together, wire together. There are many examples of this, uh, many uh, instances uh, that have been found in research on humans as well as animals. Uh, from time to time, Rick and I might describe research on animals. Uh, we have a lot of ethical qualms about a lot of that research. You know, if every species on the planet got one vote, I think humans would be gone the next day. <laughs> Uh, we'd get a vote from dogs. Cats might have to hold a meeting first. But anyway, I think we'd get them. A few others, perhaps. But I don't know. Would pigs vote for humans? I don't think, uh, you know, mosquitoes but, but would. But all the bacteria in your colon would vote for you. So. That's true. That's true. They get a vote, and there are a lot of them. Okay. So that said, there's a lot of evidence for the ways in which regular uh, mental activity changes neural structure. So here's a slide from a study that was done on long-term meditators uh, by Sarah Lazar and her colleagues out of Harvard. And the, what they found was that meditators compared to matched non-meditator controls, um, meditators had literally thicker cortex, the outer layer of the brain. The, the Latin root of the word for cortex is bark. So meditators had uh, thicker cortex in three key regions. Uh, the first region, number one, is the insula on the inside of the temporal lobes. The insula is very involved in interoception, tuning into oneself. If you take a breath right now and notice that it's relatively cool going in and a little warmer going out, 
uh, or you feel the internal sensations of breathing or in your body altogether, you're working your insula. Also, the insula is very involved in empathy for the emotions of others. So it's kind of like a two-for-one deal here, whereby if we tune into our bodies, we can become more self-aware over time, as well as become more empathic for the emotions of others. So again, you see this little example of repeated patterns of mental activity changing neural structure and function. In this case, literally building up tissue, building up synaptic connections, building up capillaries, uh, blood flow that brings supplies to busy regions in this part of the brain that's doing that repeated work, the insula. It's a little bit like building a muscle. You know, if you lift a weight once, you won't get much benefit. But if you lift a, a relatively you know, heavy weight repeatedly, day after day after day after day, you'll get some real change in your muscle. In the same way, repeated patterns of mental activity change neural structure and function. The second region up there is toward the front of the brain. Prefrontal regions are involved in top-down executive control. And that's what we practice a lot as well when we meditate. Much as when we meditate, we tune into the body, especially these are mindfulness uh, meditators practicing mainly mindfulness of breathing probably. Um, in the same way that when you tune into the body repeatedly, you build up tissue in the insula, when you exercise deliberate regulation of attention, you know, bringing attention back to the breath, as Rick said earlier, or um, establishing kind of an inner watcher of the breath, or uh, willfully applying and then sustaining attention uh, to whatever your object of attention is, you build up neural circuitry in the regions behind the forehead that are involved in the executive functions of regulating attention as well as regulating feelings and desires and actions. Pretty good. And then there's a third little benefit at the top of the head, building up somatosensory cortex, because these are meditators who are repeatedly tuning into their body. Interestingly, also, if you take a look at the scatter plot at the bottom, the blue circles are the meditators. Not everybody in the study is in that scatter plot. Um, it's just an illustration. And the red squares are the match controls. This was not a longitudinal study. There's no money for a 30-year study on meditation, right? Plus, you can't randomly assign people to the meditator group and to the control group. But still, it was quite well done and well controlled. Anyway, um, the scatter plots show uh, what's called normal cortical thinning due to aging. In other words, we lose ballpark about 10,000 brain cells a day. That sounds like a lot, but if you start with 1.1 trillion brain cells, we've usually lost a few percent by our 80th birthday. But that process of normal loss of brain cells netted against the birth of around 700 or so baby neurons every day, which can be promoted by exercise and also uh, complexity and stimulation. That's a passing comment that I use to motivate myself to exercise sometimes. But anyway, um, you know, still uh, what happens normally is a, a thinning, a gradual thinning of cortex as we age. And this process of normal cortical thinning is associated with normal cognitive decline due to aging. Not uh, Alzheimer's, not dementia, but you know problems with name finding, uh, experiences of walking into a room to do something or get something and forgetting why you walked into that room to do that or get that and then having to go back to the other room to remember why in the world did I launch that particular mission. All right. Uh, well, you can see that the red square folks, the controls, uh, the older controls actually had thinner cortex than younger matched controls, non-meditators. But you can see that the blue circle people, the meditators, in terms of these three key regions, did not experience normal cortical thinning. 
uh, associated with aging. They used it so they did not lose it. This is which critically is, important for us because we've, we, Rick and I have both gone off the right end of the slide. <laughs> in terms of age, in terms of age. Um, <laughs> So, that's right, we're still hanging in there. Anyway, so the takeaway now, it's an important point. Meditation is not the only way to change the brain. And the brain is continually changing for better or worse, right? Um, you know, other practices, uh, gratitude practices, relaxation practices, uh, loving-kindness practices, uh, or everyday life uh, experiences that are positive uh, can change the brain for the better. It's also true that the brain is very vulnerable to change for the worse. This is the negativity bias of the brain. Uh, it's very, as I'll get to a little bit later, it's very easy for the brain to overlearn from its negative experiences and it tends to underlearn from its positive ones. Uh, and, and that creates a challenge as well as an opportunity that I'll be getting into momentarily. Okay, so a bit of an overview, relationship between the mind and the brain. Uh, since uh, I saw a lot of hands go up uh, with regard to people engaging some kind of contemplative practice with or without a relationship to the transcendental, um, you know, it's interesting to think about the effects of meditation on the brain. You know, there's so much research at this point about the wholesome effects of meditation on the brain, on the body in general, and on the mind and on relationships and on resilience that if the large pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer or Merck could patent meditation, we'd be seeing ads for it every night on television. I think we'd crowd out some of the ads for Prozac. I don't think we'd have fewer ads for Viagra. You know, I think, uh, I think that's a different territory. But anyway, to quickly summarize, uh, good studies have shown that, as I've said, um, repeated practices of meditation build up cortical tissue in the insula, uh, as well as the prefrontal cortex, um, also in the hippocampus, which is a very important part of the brain that Rick mentioned, uh, that's involved in putting things in context. The hippocampus also inhibits amygdala activation. The hippocampus calms down the amygdala. And the hippocampus also tells the hypothalamus to quit calling for stress hormones. So building up tissue in the hippocampus is really important because it helps us be more resilient. The flip of it is that repeated experiences of stress, unfortunately, release so much cortisol uh, that it cortisol overstimulates neurons in the hippocampus and gradually kills them, including to the, the upper limit of literally losing about a quarter of the cells in the hippocampus in extreme cases. So uh, if one's had a stressful life, uh, one of the best things one can do you know, to recover function, in addition to exercise and you know, complexity and stimulation, is to do different kinds of com contemplative practice or to cultivate positive emotion in general uh, because that can support um, structure building in the hippocampus. Also, it's interesting that research has shown that um, uh, by doing contemplative practices, that's the last little bullet down there at the bottom, long-term practice, uh, at least, strong concentration practice, and concentration is our focus today, preserves these uh, strips of atoms at the very tail ends of the DNA molecule called telomeres or telomeres. It can be pronounced either way. And uh, what happens is that as cells divide, DNA molecules have to divide. And with repeated divisions, uh, these telomeres uh, shrink. And that shrinkage is associated with age-related diseases of various kinds. 
Well, interesting research recently, and one of the co-authors was Elizabeth Blackburn, uh, who won the Nobel Prize recently for her research on telomeres. Um, that study showed that the people who had done that long-term concentration retreat actually preserved the length of their telomeres uh, in um, you know, various regions of their body. This is called Buddhist Botox. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's it. I'm afraid that was taped. <laughs> okay, so what's the point of all this, right? What's the point? Well, for us the point is to um, look at different ways to encourage and grow wholesome factors of mind positive, useful strengths of various kinds. So if you think about it, this is kind of a summary list of major Buddhist inner strengths. And these are taken from um, the Noble Eightfold Path, as well as what are traditionally considered to be the three fundamental pillars of Buddhist practice, as well as the seven factors of awakening. Uh, there are, are other positive, uh, you know, well-known uh, factors uh, to develop in the mind from some other lists, but this is a pretty good, pretty good list right here. So if you think about it, in our practice, and this goes to the question earlier about, um, you know, if this is a practice ultimately in Buddhism of non-attachment, how do we balance that with deliberate efforts to cultivate positive factors, to cultivate positive causes? And the underlying framework for this uh, in Buddhism, which is very consistent, interestingly, with modern science, is to focus on processes and their causes. Processes of suffering and their causes, and processes of happiness, love, and peace, and their causes as well. Right? How do we cultivate the causes? Well, the Buddha focused on the cause, those causes as they appear in the mind. What we now understand increasingly, in 2,500 years later, is that there are underlying physical, biological, neurological, material causes of those causes of suffering and those causes of happiness, peace, and love. Right? So how do we cultivate, how do we gradually undo in the mind-brain system altogether, how do we gradually undo the causes of suffering, and how do we gradually grow? the causes of um, happiness, peace, love, virtue, and wisdom uh, inside the mind-brain system. That takes us to the fundamental question of how do you develop inner strengths broadly defined inside the brain, okay? These inner strengths in the natural frame are built out of brain structure and function, you know? So let's think of those green balls, as it were, as I'm not prejudiced against red, okay? Red is a lucky color in a lot of ways, so I want to bow to all the reds in the world. But that said, you know, reds are bad, green is good in this little picture. Okay. Nothing personal. Anyway, so all the red lights in the room, I'm sorry about that. But anyway, okay. So it's just... Just a metaphor. You're not so, biased against size. The green is bigger. That's it. Well, it's, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, how do we get them? How do we get them inside the brain? How do we grow the good? All right? And I want to lay a little foundation here, and then we'll start moving into a practice about this. So there's this fundamental cycle of learning, uh, because that's what it means to grow the good. Learning broadly defined. Uh, as involving memory, especially emotional memory, what's called implicit memory, um, 
And also, fundamentally, learning or memory is about changes in neural structure and function. That change process happens in a two-stage way, that in which there's a movement from a momentarily activated mental state to a more enduring, lasting, installed neural trait. Traits, in turn, foster states, and the basis of the acquisition of traits is states in this cycle. Okay? So let's just use a really simple example. There you are, right? Rick's giving you this lovely guided practice. And you're feeling, let's say, relatively peaceful and centered, for a moment at least, right? Sense of relaxation, sense of presence, sense of ease. That's a state. That's a momentary mental state, right? Which must map to some kind of underlying neural state. There's a pattern of mental neural activity right there. Something's happening right now. You have this experience, okay? Many, many, many mental states, mental neural states, pass through the mind-brain system without becoming converted into any kind of lasting structure. They don't become a trait. They don't get installed, okay? On the other hand, we have a brain that's biased for survival of purposes Um, honed over evolutionary time, 600 million years of evolution of the nervous system, we have a brain that's very prone to turn negative states, suffering, anger, fear, um, drivenness, grasping, clinging, envy, uh, shame. The brain is very prone to turning those momentary negative states into lasting negative neural traits. On the other hand, with a little bit of mindful attention and sometimes just luck, as it were, we can deliberately um, take activated mental, positive mental states and install them as positive neural traits. These, if you think about it, where do we get these strengths? We get these strengths from installing experiences of them. Positive traits are built primarily from positive states. That has enormous implications. Positive states are not just some Hallmark card moment, some kind of casual, oh, how nice. Positive states are the absolute most fundamental building blocks of the inner strengths of various kinds that we want to cultivate in ourselves and those we care about or work with or help. Positive Traits like resilience or moral inclinations or uh, patience, other virtues, or happiness or love or inner peace or liberating insight or factors of concentration, you know, to whatever extent these um, positive traits are acquired, they're acquired mainly through the installation of experiences of them or their related factors. And those experiences tend to be positive. Right? Happiness is skillful means. So how do we actually do it? Right? How do we build them into our brain? That's where this cycle of activation installation comes in, which we'll be working here today. If you have a positive experience, a positive state, that's an opportunity, one bit at a time, one synapse at a time, to actually install it in your brain, to take in the good, in other words, to do the deliberate internalization 
of useful positive experiences in underlying implicit emotional body memory. We're talking here about using the embodied registration of useful experiences to steepen a person's learning curve and develop um, the good, broadly defined, inside us or in those we're working with. So as we go through today, developing more and more mastery of activation and installation, developing more and more mastery of states and traits is a fundamental way to learn how to learn, which is the silver bullet, if you think about it. Right? So we'll have a lot of moments today, and this is kind of a foundation for this, about um, you know, both activating or having positive, useful states of mind, mind including body sensations, you know, mind the entirety of conscious experience, right, as part of mind. We'll have lots of opportunities to activate useful states, and then in particular we'll encourage you from time to time to take the extra 10 seconds, take the extra dozen seconds or so to really help that positive experience to sink into you. Since if neurons that fire together wire together, the more that we get those neurons firing, the longer they're wiring, the more intensely, pardon me, the longer they're firing, the more intensely they're firing, the more that it's a whole body experience. You know, the more neurons we get going, the more wiring we're going to get of weaving that positive quality into the fabric of our brain and our life. The takeaway from this is that fundamentally, we can use the mind to change the brain, to change the mind for the better. And that's the essence of self-directed neuroplasticity. Now, to put it in context, and then I'll see what you think about it here, um, you know, in this setting in particular, I think it's important to think about uh, what we're doing when we are growing, when we are installing, to use that language, uh, positive uh, qualities. Um, How does that relate to bear witnessing, for example? And that's where I think it's useful to, to understand there are basically three ways to engage the mind. Three ways to practice with the mind. In the first way, we just be with what's there. Right? We witness it. We try to step back from it. We try to disidentify from it. We try to engage observing ego about it. Um, we try to hold our experience, our thoughts, our feelings, hopes and sorrows in a big open space of awareness. Um, we might unpack what's there. We might explore and investigate it. We might sense down to what's younger, more vulnerable, or more central in the experience, but we're not trying to change the experience directly. It might change, and it often does, through this unpacking, disidentified, observing process, but we're not directly intervening in it. I think that's the most fundamental way to engage the mind, but it's not the only way to engage the mind. The Buddha, who is, who is a major fan, obviously, of this way to engage the mind, also allocated most of the elements of the Noble Eightfold Path to working with the mind, not just being with the mind. In particular, and you can see this in the wise effort uh, element of the Noble Eightfold Path, uh, the other two ways to engage the mind, to practice with the mind, are to reduce what's negative and to increase what's positive. To use a metaphor, if the mind is like a garden, we can witness it, we can pull weeds, and we can plant flowers. Right? Or in six words, let be, let go, let in. Right? When we talk here about cultivation, the growing of the positive, that's just one of the three ways to engage the mind. So I want to put it in context. On the other hand, it's a profoundly important way to engage the mind. For example, simply to be able to just be with the mind, you've got to cultivate the capacity to do that 
to detach from experience, to have what in psychology is called distress tolerance, to be able to hold on to or stay centered in that observing place. You know. Also, a lot of stuff that happens in the mind is kind of yucky. As they say in Alcoholics Anonymous, the mind is a dangerous neighborhood. Never going alone. Right? <laughs> so if we don't have inner allies, if we haven't cultivated inner allies with us, sometimes opening to our experience can be like opening a trapdoor to hell. Right? Also, if we're just you know, in the upset, just, oh yeah, feeling crud, yep, more crud, observing feeling crud, 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 crud. You know, at some point, past the point that's useful, since neurons that fire together, wire together, and we've got a brain that's very biased and toward overlearning from negative experiences, just marinating in crud under the general heading of, you know, just being with my experience, is like doing laps around a track in hell, digging that track a little deeper each time we go around it. You know, I personally think that even though the first way to engage the mind is the primary way to, is a, is the most fundamental way to practice, it's deeply important, it's gotten overvalued in some circles, especially in the last 20, 30 years. You know, in certain, in some parts of Buddhist practice, some aspects of mindfulness-based interventions, some kinds of non-dual uh, approaches. Um, and I think, um, you know, the Buddha and other teachers have given us a whole set of tools. Why not use all the tools, right? especially tools, including tools, that uh, we're more understanding of now 2,500 years later. Okay. So in that context, even people like the monastics, um, who are major fans of simply witnessing uh, the passing stream of consciousness, they as well appreciate the importance of cultivation. Okay? Uh, to summarize all this, and I'll see what you think, and then we'll do a practice. Um, this is a saying, I never can pronounce the name correctly, I think, Pico Thera, anyway, uh, it really kind of summarizes it. Know the mind, that's the being with place. Shape the mind, all right? Knowing the mind shapes the mind, and also there's a place for wise effort. Reducing the negative, growing the positive, pulling weeds, planting flowers, and ultimately free the mind altogether. Which, for some people for whom that's meaningful, that engages that X factor outside the natural frame. Okay. Questions or comments so far? This is probably the most conceptual chunk we're going to do today, but it's a foundation. All right, questions? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.